Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Rebecca F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Monday, October 20th, 2014. Sorry. (laughs) Today we are reading from the big book, and we are at the beginning of the book in the pre-chapter called The Doctor's Opinion on page Roman numeral XXVIII, the third paragraph beginning with If Any Feel. Today's readers are reading the OA 12 Steps is Nancy S., reading the OA 12 Traditions is Joanne L., and reading the literature are Renata, Chelsea, and Anita. The reference number for Sunday, October 19th is 6967. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Nancy F. to read the OA 12 steps. Thanks, Rebecca. This is Nancy S. from Wisconsin, a recovering compulsive overeater. Can you hear me okay? Yes, Nancy. Okay, thank you. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God 
as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, and I'll pass. Thank you, Nancy S. I will now ask Joanne L. to read the OA 12 Traditions. Good morning, Rebecca and everybody. This is Joanne L. in New Jersey, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. The 12 Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. And twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, I pass. Thank you, Joanne L. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today, we resume our study of the big book in the doctor's opinion on page XXVIII, the third paragraph beginning with, if any feel. I will now ask Renata to start by reading that one paragraph. 
Hi, Rebecca. Good morning. Hi, everyone. This is Renata, uh, recovered compulsive reader in New York. If any feel that that as psychiatrists directing a hostel for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the fiery lane line. See the tragedies, the despairing wives, the little children. Let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments. And the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this this movement. We feel after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. And so, you know, doctors are usually not sentimental people, but because of all the tragedies of the alcoholism that they could witness, they decided to support whatever was working, which was, you know, one alcoholic working with another alcoholic. And I wanted to read two passages in the book that talks about how powerful that is. Uh, On page 89, it says, Excuse me. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Others fail. And then on page 124, it says, cling to the thought that in God's hand, the part, the past, sorry, the dark past, is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others. With it. You can avert death and misery for them. So I'm just very grateful that these doctors were humble enough to admit that they did not have the answer for our disease, for alcoholism, and uh, let, you know, Bill and others work through their experience with other alcoholics and start this AA movement. Thanks, and I pass. Thank you, Renata. Who would like to share on this paragraph? Janine? Did I hear someone besides Janine? Okay, go ahead, Janine. Good morning, and thank you so much for your service. This is Janine Fonseca, oh, excuse me, Janine F., a uh, recovering compulsive overeater in New Hampshire. Um, you know what's what's uh, what jumped out at me at this was the despairing wives and the little children, and I'm in a place in my life now where I'm where I was surrounded by a despairing ex-husband and a little child. Um, I'm in the middle of a divorce right now, and it's directly attributable to my compulsive overeating. Um, it's it's very hard to talk about this, but I got the nudge from God that I need to be honest and say that my compulsive overeating was instrumental in ripping apart my marriage. Uh, couldn't put the food down. I would run to the food whenever my husband would get angry at me. Uh, I would be more interested in just eating than doing what needed to be done. And I've known for a long time I've known for a long time that this is where I needed to be, that program is what I needed to be. And in the past, program has worked for me. 
it has done wonderful things in my life if I work the steps and continue living in 10, 11, and 12. So I just want to say that I'm really grateful this, for this meeting this morning, and I'm grateful for everyone on the line, and sorry for my slip-up. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Janine. Did you say S or F as in Frank? F as in Frank. Okay, thank you very much. Would anyone else like to share on what was read? This is Janice M. Hi, Janice M. Good morning, Rebecca, and thank you so much for your service. And good morning to everyone. My name is Janice M., and I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Yes, it was uh, touched on very well with the sentimentality of a doctor. Well, you know, doctors are usually very scientific, and um, here we are, the, the psychiatrist, I mean, this doctor is talking about how they have a heart, they have a feeling, they have a genuine feeling towards these alcoholics because they've seen them, they've experienced the disaster of coming and going out of the hospital, and they have surrendered, the doctors have some humility, like was, was said, giving credit to a power greater than them as a group of people, of, of professional people that, want, you know, are there to help, but they found that they couldn't. So, yeah, why are they sentimental? Because they say, you know what, we, we were there. You know, when we saw the battles, you know, the firing line, the tragedies, the, the battles, the despairing wives from so being so hopeless. But, but what they've accepted and encouraged was the rehabilitation, which means they saw through the power, uh, not the doctors, uh, through this power that they now have recovered. They had their families back. They, they were reunited in the families. They had jobs. They were in the community. They saw this. They experienced this when, in those days, they were putting alcoholics in asylums. And you know what? It's the same thing for us today, this exact same thing. I mean, I just talk about myself. I've been to psychiatrists. I, you know, have very good experience with doctors, and um, they are not sentimental. <laughs> Believe me, because they can't help it. They have reasons. They have reasons and facts. But you know what? When you can see, as I have seen and heard, people that have recovered like me, I mean, uh, what more can you accept than that and endorse than this movement of AA, and for us it's OA. And uh, when they see the success rate, um, that's enough to be sentimental. And to see these despairing wives go from hopeless to hope, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, that's the answer. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Janice M. Does anyone else want to did I hear Sue B? Sue G. Sue G, I mean. I knew that. Was there anyone else? Okay, Sue G. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for your leadership, trusted servant, and to everyone else. And uh, see, I couldn't even help myself. I interrupted you. Oh, well, I apologize, but here I am. Um, anyway, I'm Sue G. Um, recovered soul doctor, one day, one hour, one minute, one second at a time, sometimes a millisecond, and we won't go on. Um, I'm, I eat too much, and I restrict a little. And here I am today, 
and I I love this. Um, if any feel that a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental, let them stand with us a while on the firing line and and the vision. See the tragedies, wives, children. Part of their daily work is what is going on here. So um, thanks to these to these people. I, I read a, a description of psychiatrist sole physician. And uh, and I think that that could apply to to anybody who tries to help anyone else. It, it could apply to all of us. That that it's okay to appear somewhat sentimental. In fact, that was the salvation of these people. That 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 the Dr. Silkworth and others knew that they could witness witness bear witness to as in the third that prayer they could bear witness to the suffering of others, but they couldn't fix it. And and that's why the the scientific mask, but but underneath the mask of these people is the milk of human kindness. And the milk of human kindness is just about what, what we're told in our recovery to do, to to uh, pass the message forward, to realize that that it is the person himself, the addict, that's us folks, that has to tell themselves. And that that the encouragement given by just sharing his 1939 version of what is this illness and what is it that that uh, we have to deal with. And, and to say, you know, go forth and, and help yourself. That's how you'll prosper. Help, but don't help yourself by yourself help yourselves and, and that's what we have here today and it's a wonderful thing and uh, in personal experience terms um, the, the march forward goes on we got good news about my husband the bad news is yes he has cancer the good news is that it seems to be a very treatable kind so keep us in your prayers thank you very much and and uh, and I'll keep you in mind pass. thank you Suji I'm going to ask Chelsea to go ahead and read the next paragraph, beginning with men and women. Okay, Rebecca. This is Chelsea, Recovered Compulsive Overeater for today. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. And I'm still Chelsea, still a recovered compulsive overeater for today. So this information telling me about this phenomenon of craving that develops in me whenever I ingest any of my binge foods that I've said that I wasn't going to ingest anymore 
And the reason, explaining to me the reason why I do that is because I'm chasing an effect. I'm trying to get that effect that I get when I'm nervous, restless, upset, or even happy in my case, any kind of over-the-top extreme feelings that I don't want to deal with or that I do want to deal with to reward myself. I want to get that when I take the first bite. It's like, ah, that's what I'm chasing. But by the hundredth bite, I still haven't gotten that effect that I got when I took the first bite. So it's a vicious cycle. And then the problem becomes that I've already ingested it. And as we talked about earlier about it being a biological mandate that you have to take it once, you, once it's in your system. You have no choice. You don't, nothing else you can do. You will eat. And it's saying that even though it's going to kill us, and what that looks like for me is getting over 325 pounds and the doctor telling me that, okay, you're going to have to end up on blood pressure medicine, my knees are buckling because the weight is just too much, and the doctor's telling me all these things that, you know, you're going to have to um, really look at this more carefully because you're borderline diabetic now. And still me eating on the way home after the doctor tells me that because I'm just so rattled by that information or the possibility that I'll have to give up my food. So I'm even eating, even though I've just been told that my life is in jeopardy. But to me, it seems absolutely normal that I need to go run and grab a bite because I am so upset and so restless. I'm searching for that, ah, and it's just not happening. And then what it also looks like is when I do stop, when I do stop, I can't stay stopped, and I succumb, I give in. I succumb to that desire again. And then the craving of phenomenon development, the, the uh, phenomenon of craving develops. And then I go through my stages of pulling into all these drive-throughs, pulling into bakeries, pulling into uh, any kind of fast food joint, restaurants, then getting home and ordering more so that it could be delivered so I can sure I have backup food. And then in the morning, when all the empty boxes and bags and packages and, in my case, other evidence of me trying to control this disease is there before me, and I'm in tears again, banging on the bar, asking how did I end up here again. All right, this is going to be the last time. That's my, fir my firm resolution. That's how it manifested in me. This is going to be it. I'm going to start fresh tomorrow. I was always going to start fresh. So I'll start fresh tomorrow, and uh, everything is okay. I get up. I'm ready to start. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the thought comes into my head, well, you might as well have a really big breakfast because you're getting ready to stop eating all this food, so you might as well do that. So my firm resolution that I was going to stop is out the window before breakfast time even gets there. And it's repeated over and over unless I treat the greater part of my disease, which is my mind. And in order for that to take place, the treatment, I have to have an entire psychic change. I have to experience it, it says. I can't just read about it on the phone with you guys or chit-chat about it or talk about it, think about it, or get comfortable about it. I have to experience that psychic change in order to recover. And it's telling me here that coping with life by eating instead of living with life as it's on its terms is part of my disease. And it manifests itself by this phenomenon of craving when I ingest any of my binge foods. And there's nothing I can do about it because all, is, all that's happening now is what the food is doing for me, not what it's doing to me. So thanks for letting me share. And thanks for your service, Rebecca. 
pass. Thank you, Chelsea. Who would like to share on this paragraph? Larry? What can I share? You know, I heard Larry. I remember Sorry. I heard Bella. Vasa. Vasa. Sally. I think he might have been after Larry. Um, Sally. I Katie F. Katie F. I know I probably. And Rachel. I heard Rachel. Yeah, and Sally, I heard. Thank Let me you. tell you who I have written down. And, and Caroline. I didn't catch that. Caroline. Carolyn? Yes. Oh, okay. Let me tell you who I have on the list. Larry, Rachel, Bella, Vasa, Sally, Katie F., Carolyn, and I just heard Rochelle. Okay? And Rochelle. I I heard Rochelle. Did I miss anyone? Okay. That might just do it. Larry, you're up. (laughs) Rebecca, thanks, Larry. Recovered compulsive over here from Chicago. I don't know. I'm guessing this might be an important paragraph. I well, that's know. why I jumped to this paragraph kind of on the early side. I had a feeling and everyone I, was holding out. And I thought we were a glum lot, Rebecca. But anyway, <laughs> okay. Larry, recovered compulsive over here from Chicago. I'm going to be brief and uh, and listen to, and learn from other people. Okay, so I'll just focus in on. Uh, oh, let me pick something. The spree. Yeah, we, we, we know what that's like. See, those of us that are recovered where we had a complete psychic change. Thank you, God. I didn't do it for myself. Um, I just worked the steps, and then that, that was what was promised, and that's what happened to me. Miracle. But um, prior to doing that, I spent many, many years. Some spend, you know, come in the first day, and they are blessed. They're, they're, they're willing. And they're ready. Some aren't. Um, I was one of the unfortunate few that, you know, or many that wasn't. Um, so sp- I knew, I understood a spree. I understood that my substance would lead me back again and again because I did have the allergy of the body, but much more insidious, much more insidious was this obsession of the mind. It was the, the, the most difficult aspect of this disease because for some non- for some almost seemingly unknown reason, I would be led back again and again, and I meant it when I told myself, I vowed to you, to others, to anybody who would listen that I was done, I'm done, I'm done. But of course, I would pick up even when the substance wasn't in my body. And uh, that was baffling to me. It was baffling. And so I would I would go on a spree, and let me tell you, um, my sprees were not pretty. I don't know about you, but I can tell you about my disease. My sprees were hours, days, one meal after another, one binge after another. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stay stopped. And, you know, and this is the obsession of mine. But here's the hope. The hope is once one has a complete vital spiritual transformation, that you cannot affect your own spiritual transformation. I say that with authority because I've experienced it. That's the only, with humility I say it, I've experienced it. Once a complete psychic change occurs as the result of working these steps, the obsession of the mind is driven out. And if you don't know that, of course you don't know it. It's just theoretical, conceptual to you. You haven't experienced it. I would urge you to to experience it yourself. 
And then, of course, you're going to carry the message with the passion you're going to hear after I'm done from other people. Of course you will. Your life's been saved. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. Rachel, you're next. Hi. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you for your devoted service. And hello to all my precious friends on the line. Uh, I I feel like reacting to what everybody said because it was so, said so eloquently that this is probably an important part. I think it's the main part. Everything, all of Dr. C, all of the two letters are just incredible. Can you hear me? Rebecca, can you hear me? We hear you loud and clear, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you, Sweetie. So here... You know, um, we are chasing that effect. This little, this this little paragraph about what we are seeking in the food, especially when the tolerance gets bigger and bigger, and we need more, and we need more and more, you know, to get that effect of 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 calming down that restlessness and irritability and discontentment. I, I think sometimes that God doesn't give me uh, uh, the, uh, I, to um, to earn a lottery because he knows that I'm going to go cuckoo on that too. The same. The same as in a disaster. Can't stand the ups and downs, the movement of the moods, and so on. But nobody, including me, ever came into this program in order to have a psychic change. What are you kidding I just want to be able to fit better into this dress for the next day mitzvah or whatever. And I still can't get over the anger that still is this holy wrath that is still seething in me sometimes. How could I have sat there for 30 years and not understood and nobody showed me, showed me just this, the first paragraph of, of, of um, the introduction that will show you exactly how we recovered the second one, this, what we just read, and the third one about the percentage of success in AA for the people who really followed. So getting back to this effect and the psychic change and all that. So what if it took me six, almost six years? If I survive, God helps me with his grace. And 12th, uh, the 12th of December finds me abstinent it took me all of six years of sitting just at my table, not eating on anybody else's table, holidays, this, that, no food parades. That's what it took for me. But when I decided that the suffering was enough and I went, like, I'm going to go broke on this. I'm going to do it and do it and, and God will do his share. And here, lo and behold, I passed this holidays. Oh, my God, I just, the gratitude, I have no words. I have no words. Now that people are calling in, and I did this, and I did that, and how do I get back? I don't have The same 365 days a year, and I'm so pleased with it. And maybe when I grow up, I'm now 73, I'll be able to go out and eat with people, and nothing is going to happen to me, but I will inform you about that miracle when it happens. Thank you. Thank you for being there for me. 
Thank you for letting me share. I guess. Thank you, Rachel. Bella? Thank you. Good morning. My name is Bella, and I am a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Rebecca, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. The true from the false. Wow, it's so true, and now that I am in the program, thank God, I know the difference between the true and the false. Yes, before program, I was driven by my ego, and I thought that I am living a true life, but now I know that I was so much not in true. If somebody would tell me before program that I am selfish, I would say, I am selfish? No at all. If somebody would tell me, Bella, you are looking for control, I would say, I am looking for control? Not at all. I was sure that I am perfect because I wanted so much to be perfect, and I was sure that I am here in this world to take care of the whole entire world. Everybody has to change not me. I am so good. I am so wonderful. I am so smart. I don't have to change. If you will change, I will change too. If you will change your life, so then I will be happy. And this is the way that I lived for so many years. And I, I, I didn't see that, I, that it's not the truth. I was so much into the food that I didn't even realize that I live in the darkness. And this is the way I lived and this is the way I believed that I am perfect and I am suffering only because of you. I was blaming and judging and sometimes I, you know, I even blamed and judged myself. So no wonder that I spend my life into the food. All the time I have another reason to eat. And I am eating only because my life is not the way I wanted and I was dreaming. And now, thank God, thank God that I am in the program. Yes, first of all, I accept and admit that I am human. And I will never be perfect and I am not looking anymore to be perfect. And now, thank God, I am connected to a higher power, a loving power, an accepted power that accepts me the way I am. And yes, now I know that I am doing mistakes, and it's okay. I have the opportunity to learn and to change my behaviors and I have the power to choose one day at a time. And now, yes, I can say the truth, that I have the opportunity all the time, 24-7, to learn from others because I am not perfect. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Bella. Basa? Yes. Good morning, everybody. Vision from, for you. And uh, thank you, Rebecca, for your service. And I am Vasa, Recovered Compulsive Overeater. 
from Foxborough, Massachusetts, and after suffering from this disease for so long, so many years, I had a psychic change like Bill W. did right from the beginning when I was ready and willing to surrender to God. Um, and and I, I again I had I had to go you know it was I came to a fork you know, and I said okay do I keep on going my way or, or do I go this way, and I chose to surrender I took a chance and I said God I can't do this by myself so I surrender, and I had that ex- white light experience right from that moment, and uh, again but I would have never known that unless I came to OA and I was shown I was 12 step from a person that did that and I did what she did and surprise surprise but anyways I'm going to share just a little in the first first reading that we did as growing up in my biological home my father was the alcoholic and my mother was the compulsive overeater so I could see the eyes on my mother because she could not stop my father from drinking and I saw my father's eyes that he could not stop my mother uh, eating from her disease and developing all kind of physical problems, heart problems, diabetes, going up and down to the hospital. Uh, you know, the, And the children were seeing this as children with all their chaos and we were exposed with that kind of um, behaviors in our home. And it says, men and women drink essentially because they like the effects produced by the alcohol, and that's what I did. Uh, and my father did because he liked the, effect, the effects, and my mother liked it because um, she loved it. You know, she loved the sugars, and she loved food, and I did the same thing. So I I was the person that picked up those behaviors that I saw at home, except Thank God that my parents didn't have recovery. They didn't have programs. Although my mother passed on before I came to uh, OA, and my father was still alive for another 15 years, I was in the program, and I gave him the big book and to read it, and he gave it back to me, and he told me that was not for him. He was not an alcoholic. He thought for him to be an alcoholic had to be falling down on the streets, be homeless, and, well, he, he, you know, he was some kind of a functional alcoholic. And I'm going to talk about myself now, and I brought myself into my marriage, and I myself also got into the food, and I was restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can gain, again, experience from the sense of these that I was getting from the, from the sugars, and um, and and I I I almost divorced my husband. Even it was even after I became abstinent, I somehow I still thought he should make me happy, you know. But thank you God that I was getting the clarity and following and doing the the steps, you know, the fourth step. I needed to take an inventory of myself and my own compulsive eating, what I was doing into my, with my marriage, you know. And uh, I thank God that I had people in my life could help me and told me, stay, keep the focus on yourself, you know, keep the steps, you know, keep the focus on yourself, take them off your husband. 
and I'm still married to the same man that I was going to divorce 28 years later. And yes, we've had ups and downs like everybody else, but we are working through stuff. But thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Vasa. Sally. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, A Vision for You. This is Sally A. Uh, in New York today, a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, I, too, would like to chime in on this paragraph that I believe is really the heart of the problem that I lived for 52 years of my life. Um, and and because it is the heart of teaching us the problem, it truly is a very, very important paragraph that we're looking at. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol and, in our case, food. When I read this particular sentence, I'm reminded that when I would numb myself for so many years using food as the substance of my choice, um, and and as others have mentioned, chasing the dragon, um, just to keep myself at a nice, low numb because life was too painful for me. Sadly, we cannot selectively numb. When we select it, when we numb ourselves from life and the things that are troubling us, sadly, we are numbing ourselves to our children. I was numbing myself to all of my relationships, and I was really, effectively, I was walking around stoned for most of my life. It goes on to say in the paragraph, to them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Yes, and that's why I was on and off the wagon so many, many, many times, even though I was an Overeaters Anonymous for over 31 years, I was on and off the wagon because when I would put the food down, I would become extremely uncomfortable because I wasn't used to living like that. I was used to living numb. And so as things would crop up that would be upsetting to me, that would create this this uh, this air of restless, irritable discontent that went on in my mind, the only choice that I really had was to dive, like, you know, do a double, triple flip into the swimming pool of food, wherever that was located, you know, in my home, in my car, um, in the stores, mostly in hiding, because honestly, I must have heard millions of times, I just don't understand, you never eat. I never ate in front of people. I was such an isolator. And I really was a low-bottom feeder because it really did – I wasn't operating on a mild numb. I was operating on a very numb, stoned level for so many years. So grateful to to a vision for you especially for bringing me out of it. And then it comes over to the other side of the page, and I I don't want to speak too long. I want to just say here, we see here this, this paragraph is giving us a cycle. And I think it's very interesting that on the top of page 219, I'm not going to go there. I just want to mention it to you. A wonderful chapter that shows, and the guy actually says at the beginning of his story on 219, he describes his cycle as a merry-go-round. He was on a merry-go-round. And I really relate to that term for my cycle because it truly was a merry-go-round that I was on. I would wake up in the morning. I would put the food down. I would say to myself, this has to stop, as Bill has said in uh, Bill's story, this has got to stop. And I would, you know, make a running start through my day, and I would eat a healthy breakfast, 
and um, reluctantly because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to restrict and, and, and compensate for what happened last night or what happened yesterday from 3 o'clock on. But, okay, I'm going to make a running start to do the right thing and have a healthy breakfast. And, I, you know, I'd move through my day, and I'd, I'd feel the restlessness as I would feel, you know, that I wasn't drunk. I was getting unnumbed. And really and truly, I lived like a frog in a frying pan for years of my life, a slow-burning frog in a frying pan, numbing, stoned kind of lifestyle where I kept myself at a certain steady level of hum stoned. And so as we see here, they're telling us how we have this, he's, you know, they're going to give us a cycle where we make a decision that you're going to have the phenomenon of craving and you, you pass through the well-known stages of the spree. You binge your brains out from, if you're anything like me, somewhere between 2 o'clock and when you finally pass out on the bed or the couch. Emerging remorseful the next morning with a firm resolution the next morning. I can't go on like this. I'm going to drag myself back to OA. I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do. I'll lick the line in the middle of a highway if they tell me to. And repeat, this cycle repeats over and over. Wake up in the morning, try again, have a healthy breakfast, maybe even have a healthy lunch. By 2 o'clock, I'm, I'm making phone calls. I'm white-knuckling it. How am I going to get it? How can I do this? Oh, my gosh, there's still, refri- there's still ice cream in the refrigerator. Oh, my goodness, but they're having a party. Why don't I wake up after the party? All the mental stuff that goes on in our brain that makes you start again. And here they're giving us an insight into one of many insights that they're going to give us in the book about a cycle of behavior, a cycle of compulsivity that leads us back to the door, the only door that we thought that we had, the door of a binge, and this, this numbing and quieting down our mind, like the addicts, like the addicts that I was until I could do something different. Thanks for letting me share. With that, I pass. Thank you, Sally. Katie S.? Good morning. This is Katie F., a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. And, you know, it's, it's a little hard to be what number six or seven sharing on this same paragraph, but it is such an important uh, part of our recovery because it just, it, it just uh, capsulizes the whole cycle that goes on. And I just wanted um, to focus um I don't know what, on after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree. And, you know, that cycle just repeated over and over and over again for me. But the fact is, um, I was restless, irritable, and discontent, and I did not get the sense of ease and comfort. It got to the point where my... uh, food addiction was so quick and so um, that there was absolutely no joy in, in eating. It, I never got that feeling. I never got that feeling of ease and comfort that I had at some point. I don't even remember ever um, having that uh, where I could just eat a little and feel better because I always ate more. And so even this idea is a lie. The idea that I had the sense of ease and comfort, it really never happened. So that's why, um, you know, the, unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, 
um, I was ready for that psychic change because I was just in such a fog all the time. Whether I was eating or I wasn't eating or I was thinking about eating, it was not a fun place to be. There was nothing um, joyful about it. And I was ready to do whatever someone else had to offer me, um, which, thank God, was picking up this spiritual uh, toolkit and surrendering to my higher power so that I could see what life might possibly be like without the food. And I knew that my life was just this vicious cycle of over and over and over again uh, picking up the food and, you know, thinking if I could figure out some new way to accept myself at this um, weight that was getting higher and higher by the week, um, that it would be okay. But, of course, that was just another um, false idea. And so, you know, until I was ready to change completely and let go of any thought that I knew uh, the best way to handle the situation, then I could not change. And, you know, that included just every area of my life. And so um, I I think the question I have for anybody out there who is still choosing to pick up the food is, are they really getting a sense of ease and comfort? Are they feeling any better by picking up that food? Or is it just an empty uh, promise that they think that they're going to feel better uh, by being numbed out? And, you know, until I could see that that was just a big fat lie, I was not willing to do what people told me to do. And willingness and honesty were the keys for me. Um, And open-mindedness because I actually ate more uh, when I lost 70 pounds 27 years ago than I ate on any diet I'd ever been on. And I didn't, you know, that was my first thing is I didn't believe that I would lose the weight but I didn't care because I did not want to feel this way anymore. I did not want to be a slave to the food. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie S. Carolyn. Carolyn, press star one to unmute. Oh, thank you. Um, This is Carolyn H. from Norton, Massachusetts, and I absolutely love this paragraph. You know, um, I spent 24 years in program trying to figure out why I couldn't stay stopped, and it just never clicked. I was that constitutionally incapable person of ever grasping this program. And why was that? Because I didn't know any better. I didn't know that the big book was the answer to my problem. I just thought putting down the food was the answer to my problem. And thank you, God, seven years ago, I got that true ability of wanting to know more, of needing more, because I was done. I had that true gift of desperation. Many times in program, I thought I had the gift of desperation, But it wasn't so. It was just the the desire for abstinence. But the true gift of desperation was sitting in a meeting, looking up to the ceiling, saying, God, if you are there, you got to show me because I'm just not feeling it right now. 
And the next thing I know, I was brought to these phone lines. And before I knew it, through the big book, I was able to gain and regain my abstinence. But it wasn't just about the abstinence. It was that phenomenon that needed to stop. It was that psychic change that needed to happen. And the only way that could happen for me was going through the big book, which brought me to a bigger book, which built my spiritual foundation, which helped me to put away all the myths of deception that I had in my head that I wasn't worthy of anything or anyone. And it helped me to see how much I was loved. And it was the most incredible experience of my life. And today, thank you, God, I am sitting here and it is, what, um, I'm not sure, but I'm sure there's plenty of people on this line that could tell me how long it's been for me, that I have been abstinent and I am so grateful today because for me, it's not about the abstinence. It's about the spiritual aspect of this program. It's about doing the steps more than once. You know, I, somebody used to say, oh, all you need to do is just do the steps just one time. But the more I grow, see, on page 164, God will reveal more to me as he sees fit. And the more I learn, the more he reveals. And the more he reveals, the more I want to learn. And so with that, I have to keep doing the steps because I see another piece of me that was broken that I didn't see before because that part wasn't ready to be healed yet. So for me, I have to keep working these steps the way they're laid out in this big book and with an incredible spiritual guide or uh, director. And um, it's all about, for me, living life in a God-honoring fashion and getting rid of all that monkey chatter in my head, getting rid of all that bashing that I used to do getting rid of all the negativity and pouring in all the positive, loving things that God himself wants to make because he says so, and he says so in print. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Carolyn H. Rochelle. Good morning. This is Rochelle, and I will be remarkably short, so I think you'll appreciate that, Rebecca. So good morning, everybody. For me, the one word is amnesia. I don't think I heard anybody talk about that. What was this amnesia I had? Like I would have these binges, and I'd forget the next time. I didn't want to go there anymore. But then I had this thought, and then I would have forgotten what it was like and how bad I felt. Amnesia. Oh, my goodness. But now, here's the interesting part. I've got the opposite. I've got remembrance. I remember to pause. I remember to think. I remember to ask God to help me. And you know what? I don't have amnesia about the food anymore, and therefore I have recovery. And that's my postscript to all these beautiful shares. Have a wonderful day, everybody. I pass. Thank you, Rochelle. That gives me a minute or two to share. Hi, it's Rebecca, recovered compulsive overeater in Connecticut. Rebecca S. is in Frank. And... um this is such a fantastic paragraph, and I realized it when Ruth brought it to life 
on Thanksgiving of 2012. Um, and I love how uh, there's two phrases in here in particular that are in my mind all the time, that I cannot differentiate the truth from the false, the true from the false, it says, and also uh, restless, irritable, and discontented. You know, that comes to mind all the time. Am I restless, irritable, and discontented? Are you restless, irritable, and discontented? But what I really, besides pointing those two phrases out, wanted to say is that, you know, everybody kind of takes it for granted now, pretty much, people know that if you're an alcoholic, you need to put the alcohol down. You can't just drink, you know, beer, or you can't just have a little, or you can't just wait till after 4 o'clock to start. You literally have to just not drink any at all. And think back to in 75 years ago when this book was written, people didn't know that. They thought that they could manage their alcohol if they were if they had a problem with alcohol, they didn't know that they had to be 100% abstinent in order to have the psychic change or, you know, whatever, in order to become sober. Um, so now, 75 years later, us compulsive overeaters don't necessarily know we are compulsive overeaters and don't know that we have to be 100% abstinent from our binge foods and binge behaviors in order to be free of this obsession that makes us pick up over and over and over again, just like the alcoholic. We're the same. And I am just so grateful that some of you who came before me realized, had the bright idea, oh my gosh, we're just like alcoholics with our food. And, um, while the alcoholics today realize that they can't pick up the food, they didn't back then. And we're the back then with the food. So I just feel so blessed because I wouldn't have ever figured this out on my own. Thank you to all of you who figured it out and shared it with me and showed me. And thank you to God for giving me the willingness and the open-mindedness it didn't happen right away. It took a while. I had to keep doing my research and development, thinking, no, that's not me. I don't have to do that drastic step, just like the alcoholics back then might have thought that. And the alcoholic convinced them, and the food convinced me that I'm a real compulsive overeater. And this paragraph describes me to a T, and the only solution is to have a, a psychic change. And the only way I could have a psychic change was by putting down the food. With that, I'll pass. And I think we are out of time. In fact, I went a little over. So I want to thank you, uh, all of you who have shared. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. Will Anita please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Yes, good morning. This is Anita L. from Philadelphia. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come 
if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.